There's a reason we do that. We are grounded and centered on God's Word. You come to this church and the only thing you're ever going to hear from this pulpit is the Word of God being taught. There's just no power anywhere else. So please bring your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bible, maybe a tornado came through your home. I don't know. There should be one right in the back of that pew. And let me take this opportunity to say thanks to Dave. If you were here last week, you heard about Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. And uh, I was able to listen to a bunch of that sermon on the website. And Dave, thank you. Awesome sermon. And uh, thanks for filling the pulpit so capably. Well, many years ago... When I was a youth pastor in this church, we used to do our youth retreats, our beach retreats, in a much scaled-down fashion. Our youth ministry, this is years ago, this was 10 years ago, was not the same size that it is today. And I remember taking Matthew, my oldest son, down to the beach retreat, and we, we joined um, Rick and Linda Struby with their home. They opened up their home, and they had a powerboat, and we, it's a 26-foot crown liner, and we went out one day into the bay down in Lavalette, New Jersey, took the bay all the way around the channel, went into the ocean. And I will never forget that trip, because I've never before or since experienced this. We're out in the ocean, and if you've ever been out in the ocean in a small boat, then you probably know what I'm talking about. At the crest of the waves, you can see forever. It's amazing how high you can get on top of those waves. But then every crest is followed by a trough. That's when you go down deep. And we would go down so deep that literally the level of the ocean would be higher than our heads. You can't see anything but a wall of water all the way around you. Now, that was frightening to me. My six-year-old son, it was terrifying. And Matthew was crying, and he was scared. Here's what I did, and this is going to get us ready for this sermon. I picked him up put them on my lap, and I just held them. And you know what happened? Parents, you know what happened. He fell asleep within two minutes. There's something about being on your daddy's lap. There's something about being in the embrace of your father that brings security. And to see Jesus, which we will look deeply at in just a moment, asleep in the middle of a storm that even experienced fishermen were quaking with fear from, asleep in the, in the middle of this storm, in the back of that boat, he knew his father's love. And he knew his father's power. Friends, if you haven't yet, and I think most of us have, you're going to experience horrific storms in life. You may be in one right now. And a lot of times, you don't see them coming. How do we get through them? Well, we're in the middle of a series called The Summer and the Sun. We're taking the entire summer and just looking in the Gospel of Mark, and all we're doing is looking at Jesus. It's been my favorite series I've ever preached. How much better can it be to just look at the Son of God for an entire summer? So I've had a lot of fun. I trust that you are learning and profiting from this as well. But we want to get right into this passage, and I want to take you into storm thinking. Storm thinking. Now, this, this whole story is a metaphor. It's a living parable for life. And storms can materialize out of blue skies. And they can come suddenly. You have no time to prepare. You have no time to lower an anchor. You have no time to get to the protection of the shore. You're right 
in the middle of the lake of life, and what are you going to do when the storm comes? Well, my question for you is this, and this is all just to get you thinking this morning. Listen, you don't come to church, I hope, to just sit passively receiving what I'm telling you. Please don't do that. Interact. Disagree. Ask questions. Don't disagree too much, Ken. But ask questions. Go back to the text and see if what I'm saying is right. But get your mind in gear. Let's really think through this. My, my goal this morning is to try to get you inside the boat. I really want you to get into the boat this morning. I want you to feel the salt spray. Well, you're not going to feel salt spray. It's a freshwater lake. But I want you to feel the spray of that water. And I want you to see the heights of these waves. And I want you to feel a little bit of the tremor of anxiety going to fear. And all of a sudden, I want you to feel the movement of faith or the lack of faith in your heart. Because what do you do in storms? Listen, when storms come, and I could put a thousand names on these storms. We name the hurricanes, right? I could put a name on these storms. Doctor's report. Unemployment. Your house catches on fire. Your spouse leaves you. You love somebody and they die. Listen, I could go on and on. Storms are so varied. What do you do when they come? They're going to come. Well, we're going to do, we pray, what Jesus did and what he taught his disciples. You know, the, the early church took this story, this event that happened on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and they captured it in a lot of art. You can see it behind me. Look what's in the middle of that boat. Do you see it? Are you able to detect that? That figure, that symbol of the cross? See, the early church captured this so many times. This is Rembrandt's version of it. But they captured the example of this story as being, this isn't about when you go into a storm only. This isn't about us personalizing the Word of God and individualizing it completely. It's, it's that. You go through storms. But listen, it's about the church. It's about the church going through storms. It's the church going through persecution. And guess what? I don't know if you know your Bible well enough to know this or agree with me, but these storms are coming. We already feel it blowing. We've already getting pushback from the city of Easton for what we're doing down there through our ministries. But these storms are coming, and they're coming into all of our lives, and they're going to be coming against this church, and we've got to be ready. And so part of what I'm doing this morning is looking at how Jesus endured this storm. And here we go, Mark 4, verse 35. Look what it says. On that day when evening had come. Now, if you're going to be a student of the Bible, and you're going to really know the Word of God, you've got to stop and say, okay, what, what happened that day? Why would Mark say, on that day? Something's important. He wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it, and he wouldn't mean it if it wasn't important. So on that day is something where every student of the Bible has to have the discipline and say, all right, let me look back to chapter 4, verse 1, and find out what did go on that day. It's been a busy day. We'll go into it a little bit more in a minute. He'd been teaching. He'd been preaching. And the crowds were so large, they were pressing on him. Even as he backed up to the water's edge, they're coming closer to him. So he finally gets in a boat. It's a fisherman's boat, more than likely. There's a lot of them around. 
and he gets into a boat and just goes a little bit offshore, drops the anchor, and begins to preach. By the way, if you think that Jesus preached and God amplified, it, amplified his voice supernaturally, come on, that, that's not how it happened. He was a man just like us men, and he was a human being just like all of us are. His voice was natural. But water carries the voice. The acoustics are great. He goes offshore a little bit. He's preaching. The audience, the crowd, probably, probably thousands can hear him. And all of a sudden, Mark says in verse 36, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. What's that mean, just as he was? You ever stumbled on that before? Well, I've read this a lot, Pastor Tim, but I'm not sure I ever really thought much on just as he was. Is that where just as I am him came from? I don't think so. But uh, what's it mean just as he was? I think it's a lot more simple than we probably think. It means he didn't go back on shore before they left. He didn't go get something to eat before he left. He was already in the boat. The disciples, the rest of them joined him in that boat. And they took him tired, weary, ministry's exhausting, just as he was ready to go to the other side. You see, they were on the Sea of Galilee, and we think of sea, and we think of ocean, we think of salt water, but it's not a sea, it's a freshwater lake, and it's a pretty good-sized lake. It's eight miles wide at its widest point, 13 miles long, and it's about 150 feet deep at its deepest spot, and that's pretty deep. The lake I grew up on, the Ryder Lake, 60 feet deep at its deepest end. And it was a, a really challenging lake. It was a beautiful lake. The, the River Jordan that we're all familiar with flows into the northern part of the lake, flows out of the southern part of the lake, all the way down to empty into the Dead Sea. And this lake is so beautiful because it's surrounded by mountains. Did you know that this lake, the Sea of Galilee... Now listen, this is really interesting. It's the lowest body of water on the planet. It sits 682 feet below sea level, which means what I'm about to tell you is even more stark and even more meaningful. There's mountains around the lake, and these mountains on the west and the northwest go up about 1,300 feet, but if you go to the northeast and the east, the mountains go up to about 3,000 feet. And this is a pristine, beautiful, low-lying, mountain-shrouding lake and it provides for terrifying storms to occur. You see, these mountains create storms that can spring up literally in a moment. Because the winds sweep down from those mountains and they create downdrafts, and it mixes with the, the warm thermal air of that low-lying lake, and it's these winds that come down which is why Luke writes in that chapter 8, verse 23, a windstorm came down on the lake. You see, these words, friends, are important. Let me tell you briefly why the words are important in Scripture. You've heard of inspiration, right? The inspiration of the Scriptures. Meaning that God breathed it, God inspired the Word of God. Now listen, look at me for a second because this is important. If you've ever been to a conference for your business or for your schools, for your nursing group, and you've been to a pretty big conference and it has workshops and it has what's called the plenary session. The plenary session is when everybody pulls into one session. You've got them all in the biggest room. Later, you usually break out on workshops. Well, there's two words for inspiration. They're both important. 
One is called plenary inspiration. That means all, fully, all of God's word is inspired. But there's another word, and by faith we believe it, that in the original manuscripts there is verbal inspiration. Plenary is all of God's word is inspired. Verbal means that even the very choices of the words are inspired. So when Luke tells us that the windstorm came down on the lake, it's meant to help us understand this is what's so complex about this lake. These winds shriek down onto this lake and it creates these almost instantaneous storms. It's like the lake sits in a bowl and the ravines function like funnels. And guess what? They're capable of producing 20-foot waves. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Tim, come on. I mean, I've seen the perfect storm movie. These waves are nothing. Well, they're not sitting in a 25-foot by 7-foot fishing boat. That's a basically a sail with a wooden hull. We need to remember that. In fact, they've recovered one of them from the sediment and the drought. They pulled it right out of the bottom of the lake. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, he wrote that there were usually more than 300 fishing boats on the lake at any one time. Friends, this lake was so full of algae, fish were dominant. It still is a heavily fished lake, known for its wonderful species of fish. But here's a little extra tidbit of information that Mark tells us that nobody else does. Matthew and Luke don't tell us this. Look what he says in verse 36. There were other boats with them. Did you know that? It's not just Jesus and the 12 disciples on that lake during that storm. It's Jesus and an armada of boats. There were other boats with them. People were following them. And here they are. Luke says they were sailing, not paddling, not using the oars. They're sailing, meaning there's a beautiful, gentle, balmy breeze. After a long day of ministry, they are enjoying this, and they're heading to the other side. Listen, when you go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the Gospels, that means vacation. They get a break. I mean, they're dogged by demon-possessed people. They're dogged by everybody wanting to be healed. They're dogged by preaching session after preaching session, and all of these things that they're doing. And the disciples hear Jesus say, let's go across a lake. I can tell you they're thinking, it's about time. I need a weekend. Don't you feel that way sometimes? They're on the other side of the lake because there's not as many people over there and there's not a whole lot of Jews. They're going there to take a break. But the calm, balmy evening was about to be shattered, verse 37, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. You see, that cold upper mountain air was sweeping down from the, the heights, slicing through those ravines, picking up speed. Did you know that 70 miles per hour winds on the Sea of Galilee, even today, are not uncommon? Do you remember a few weeks ago we looked at Peter? James, Andrew, and John, and they just came out of the synagogue with, with Jesus. And you remember in that synagogue was a church service, and all of a sudden this demon-possessed man begins shrieking. And Jesus dispossesses the man of that demon, and then they leave. And where do they go? They go to Peter and Andrew's home. They walk into the home, and Peter's mother-in-law is lying in bed, sick with what Luke says was a high fever. Do you remember what we said that Greek word for high was? Megas. 
supersized fever, her life was at stake. You see this word in here, this great storm, or rather great windstorm? That word is megas again. If you go to Matthew, you remember from Dave last week, Matthew was a tax collector. He's landbound. He's not a sailor. He's not a fisherman. He's in the middle of this storm too. So Mark's perspective is a, or Matthew's perspective is a little bit different than Mark. Mark says this was a mega windstorm. Matthew says no, Mark, that's not good enough. This was a mega seismos. This is a earthquake on water of mega proportions. Listen, perspective matters when you're writing the gospels. God even inspires that. And water was coming in so fast that Mark does a tricky little language, a tricky little writing skill. Look what he says. The boat was already filling, meaning that the windstorm came up so fast that the boat already began to fill before they even could figure out what to do. Remember I told you that there are other boats on the lake? All right, now you're in the boat. You ready? The wind's kicking up, waves are going 8, 10, 12, I don't know, maybe higher. And you're starting to hear the fishermen who've lived their whole life on the boat worrying about drowning. And all of a sudden, the, what light there was from the moon is obliterated by the storm clouds. It is utterly dark. They didn't have lanterns. They didn't have lights like we have today. And there's other boats in the water. And let me tell you, these wooden hulls, you hit another boat in a storm, you're both going down. There's no Coast Guard to rescue you. And they don't have life preservers. And so the fact that there's other boats only amplifies the danger, only amplifies and accentuates the fear that they were feeling. And all of a sudden, Luke tells us what all four, all three of the Gospel writers say, as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. He fell asleep before the storm hits. You know how exhausting ministry is? He was absolutely exhausted. You know, fishing commonly took place at night, so they often had a pillow that would be placed into the steadiest part of the boat, which was the rear, the stern of the boat, and that pillow was there for fishermen to take shift breaks on. And so there was a pillow there. It says he was asleep on the cushion. And all of a sudden, we think what most preachers tell us, wow, this is really awesome because this brings out the deity of Jesus Christ. He's asleep. He's human. He's fully man. And yet he's going to wake up and he's going to subdue the storm. And he's fully God. I mean, what a great thing pastors do to remind us this is a great picture of the deity of Jesus. But you know what? I think there's a little more going on. Do you remember why Mark wrote this gospel? Listen, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all had different motivations for writing the gospel. Mark's was the earliest. And there's the church that's in Rome. And Rome is beginning to persecute churches. Now, friends, listen. You're alive back then. You own your home. What would it be like for a Roman authority to find out you're a Christian and then come and take your home and put you in prison. Well, we're in the land of freedom. That, that doesn't happen. Well, it doesn't happen here yet. But what if, you, what if that were to happen? What if that happened to you? What if you were actually pulled into court and put to death for your Christian witness? 
What if you were standing before the executioner who had the sword in his hand and you were given the opportunity, like a pastor in Iran is even today, to recant of your faith and you've got one day to think about it like Martin Luther did, what would you do? Are you seeing now, are you feeling the pressure that the church it was growing, the persecution, the, hosp- the hostility towards them? And they're having to worship, and they're having to worship underground in these cave systems, these catacombs. And all the while, the church is wondering, wait a minute, where is Jesus? Is He asleep? Where is this God that we're following? Why is this happening to us? You know, we have a, an, an incredible advantage. Why do I stress every single time I preach, do you have your Bibles with you? Listen, they didn't have Bibles. Nobody pulled out their Bible and found a verse that ministered to them in the midst of a storm. Nobody sent Hallmark cards or any other parchment paper to them with a verse reference from the New Testament on it. They didn't have them in their possession. So Mark begins to compile an account of all that Jesus did or what Jesus did because he wanted to minister to this beleaguered, bedraggled, persecuted church in Rome. And so he's showing us time after time, here's your Jesus. Here's what your Jesus did. Here's what your Jesus said. This is how you know you can have faith in Him. This is how you can endure through these storms because the disciples went through them. You're not the only one suffering. Friends, storms reveal what our faith is made of. You know, after horrific hurricanes go through, all of a sudden, things that were submerged into the silt come to the surface. You ever read any of these stories? It's fascinating things that they've found after storms have come through. What, what always emerges to the surface after a storm, in the midst of a storm, is your faith. The quality of your faith. And don't you wonder what Jesus had even been teaching that day? Listen, there's no accident that Jesus is teaching and preaching all day and then all of a sudden, this divinely appointed storm. Now, what do you mean by that, Tim? Do you mean that God was the author of this storm? I don't think we know. The same word that Jesus uses to rebuke the wind is the same word He uses to rebuke the demon that's in a man. But we also know that Satan can do nothing without God's sovereign permission. I don't care how you add it up, it's divinely appointed. All storms are divinely appointed. Whether or not God is a direct author. But don't you wonder what He was teaching that day that that storm came? Listen, He was talking about seeds. You you go back to Mark 4 and you keep seeing the word seeds all through His sermons. They're the seeds of the Gospel and they're being planted. They're being sown into the hearts of people. And some of those seeds, friends, they get devoured by Satan. Every time I preach, seeds are going out. And there's times that I've preached year after year after year to the same person, and then six years later, all of a sudden, they come to know Jesus. Those other times, those seeds were falling on hearts that, of soil that were not ready to receive it. Other seeds Jesus preaches fall on hard, rocky hearts. And then difficulty kills it. Listen, I didn't sign up for this, some people say. I want to be a Christian, but I didn't know it was going to be this difficult. The seed gets choked. 
And still others get choked out by weeds and thorns because they're not ready to give up the world. As somebody said to me earlier, we've got to be in the world but not of it. Well, some people still want to be of the world and while they're in it. See, some seed endures and grows up to bring a beautiful harvest for the kingdom of God. And Jesus, all through Mark 4, listen, you've got to get this if you're going to understand the storm. He's talking about faith. He keeps talking about seeds. He keeps talking about faith. He keeps talking about trust. And He took these seeds and He sowed them generously. And He sowed them liberally. If you ever planted grass, sometimes you throw a lot more seed than at other times. And Jesus was throwing a lot of seed right into the hearts of His disciples. You know what He did? He would take them aside after He would preach to the masses. And then He would explain His parables. He's taking that seed, he's driving it down deeper, and he's watering it. He's fertilizing it. This seed's got to become growth because this is the young church. And all of a sudden, after a day of preaching about faith, we see this divinely appointed storm demonstrating just where they were in their journey of faith. Listen, what do you do? Let's be honest. What do you do when a terrifying storm springs up? When it seems like there's no light of hope on the horizon and all you see are waves coming in and your boat is filling up and you don't know if you're going to stay afloat. I mean, what do you do? What do I do in those times? You know, you could go back to Psalm 107 and it's almost like the psalmist was there that day 800 years in the future. Here's what he writes. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep, for He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, and they mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths, and their courage melted away in their evil plights, and they reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. It's like they're watching this storm in the Sea of Galilee. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. Was He there? I mean, this is inspiration. This is God inspiring the psalmist Really pointing to an event that's going to happen, but something we all have related with because we've all had storms come into our lives. And will we turn to the Lord in trust? Or will we do what we're about to read that the disciples did? Verse 38, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care Do you not care that we are perishing? Friends, you're seeing their faith. You're seeing what constitutes as their faith. Now think like you were there. Think like you're one of the ones in the boat. Feel the terror. Feel the chaos of the moment. And all of a sudden you start hearing what skeptics will tell you. You see, this is another reason I don't trust the Bible. It's filled with inconsistencies, right? Because you go to Matthew... 
And Matthew records that the people woke Jesus up saying, Lord, calling Him Lord. Luke says they woke Him up calling Him Master. Mark says they woke Him up calling Him Teacher. And, and people are saying, well, see, that's why I don't trust the Bible. Well, listen, let's put yourself in this situation. You think you're going to hold the committee when you think your boat's going down, taking minuted notes? Okay, how are we going to wake up the, the Jesus? What are we going to call Him? Let's decide. We mean you're abstaining. You can't. you got to vote. Listen, some were waking them up. They're, they were in panic mode. They're terrified. They're thinking they're going to die. And some are saying, Master, why are you sleeping? Don't you even care? And some were saying, Lord, we are about to die. And Mark records that some were saying, Teacher. Why did Mark say, out of all the voices, why did he select the word teacher, the title teacher? Well, I think there's a reason. And here it is. You ready? We're at the very, very epicenter of this sermon. See, Mark is doing something that we fail to do too often. He's connecting the teachings of Jesus with the demonstration of his teaching. He's been teaching faith all day. And now here's this divinely appointed storm that's washing over the disciples' hearts and revealing the condition of their faith. And Mark is connecting it for us. The teacher is at work. It's like he does with all of us. You know, I've wondered, even if I haven't voiced it, Lord, do you really care? I mean, I watch people in our church suffer, it seems, month after month. There's been a few that have suffered year after year. And ceaseless praying for them. And yet still, the storms batter their boat and they're always right on the edge of not being able to keep up with the bailing that is necessary to keep them afloat. And I really wonder, I don't, I don't voice it too often, but I really wonder, God, what is happening? Where are you? How can this just keep going? The most common response I have observed in Christians who are facing storms in their life is this. God, do you really even care? You know, I've never yet had a Christian say, I don't know if God's got the power to get me through this storm. I've never, ever heard a Christian say that. Never. But regularly, God, I don't know if you care that I am perishing. It's the language of fear and it's the language of doubt. It's the evidence. If you can hear what I'm saying and if you can absorb it with honesty, it's the evidence of a faith that needs strengthening. It's a faith that really does truly doubt the love of God for you. And if we are really honest, it's a prayer of accusation. And Jesus, newly awakened by those disciples, responds immediately, verse 39, and He awoke and He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great Calm. Have you ever noticed that Mark alone, Matthew and Luke don't do this, Mark alone brings out that Jesus, Jesus performed two separate distinct actions. Did you pick it up? Look what He did. I'm going to read it again. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea. Nobody else records that. So again, no, this is why I'm taking great pains this morning to teach you and remind you 
about plenary and verbal inspiration. God breathes scriptures. Because you've got to see that Mark knows what he's doing when he's writing. God is superintending this. And God wants us to see Jesus does two things. He rebukes the wind and he says to the sea to be still. And all of a sudden, if you like science, you start to think through what, what causes waves. You know the number one cause of waves is wind. In fact, you look it up on the internet this afternoon, you're going to find that the size of a wave depends on the distance that the wind blows over open water, the length of time that it blows, and the speed of which it blows. Those three factors determine waves. And waves are energy from wind that are rolling across a body of water. And when it hits the shoreline, listen, next time you go to the beach, just watch them. You'll remember at least something that I've said to you, I hope. When it hits the shore, the energy dissipates. Some of it recoils back. Why did I tell you all of that? Because there's a cause and an effect. The cause is wind and the effect is boat crashing, drowning waves. And sailors know that, sea, that the, the sea calms long after the storm stops blowing, but not here. Jesus rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. You get into the tenses of the Greek. This was instantaneous. Supernatural. But the story's not over because all of a sudden we begin to see, wait a minute, there's a cause and an effect. And, and if you're alert and if you're astute to the Gospel, you can see the Gospel in this. You can hear the Gospel in this. Because the Gospel is all about God's grace and God's mercy. Now, I know you've heard pretty snazzy definitions of grace and mercy. Right? Unmerited favor, getting what you don't deserve, not getting what you do deserve. We've all heard them, but let me give you, I think, the best definition I've ever heard at least. And here it is. Grace is unique from mercy. Grace is God's loving willingness and power to deal with sin. The wind here, the root problem, the wind is represented here. It's the cause of our most serious distresses in life. Listen, you ever had a loved one die? Don't be like the Pharisees and in your mind go, well, they must have really sinned. It's the product of sin. It's not always the product of personally committed sin. There was no death until Adam and Eve disobeyed God. There were no earthquakes. There were no storms on the Sea of Galilee. All of this is a byproduct of sin. And God's grace deals with the very root of it, the very cause of all of our suffering, the very cause of these storms. And it's in the form of His grace. But mercy is different. Friends, mercy is God's willingness and His compassion to deal with the effects of this sin. Here, seen in the waves that are threatening to capsize your boat. You see, grace goes to the root, and then God's mercy deals with the effects. And grace never operates outside of God's mercy. You never see God's mercy when He hasn't first given His grace. They go together. They are a package deal. We call it the Gospel. And we see in this the disciples' faith being revealed for what it is. It's shattered. It's weak. It's anemic. It's not healthy. 
And they're accusing God. They're accusing Him. They're doubting His goodness. Do you not care that we are drowning? And all of a sudden we see grace and we see mercy. Grace dealing with the the problem of their faith and mercy dealing with the effects of that problem. And all of a sudden in verse 40, it all connects and snaps into purpose. Here it says, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See, you might have been saying so far this morning, you know, Pastor Tim, I'm not sure I agree with you. I'm not sure I'm, I'm really agreeing this connection between fear and faith. Well, I didn't come up with it. Jesus did. He says, why are you so afraid? And then He tells you the problem. Here's what grace is dealing with. Have you still no faith? And mercy is going to deal with the fear, but you've got to take away the faith issue first. And all that day's teaching comes crashing back to them. Where is their faith? See, the presence of fear, friends, always reveals the absence of faith. I don't like hearing that, Tim. I don't like it either. But it's true. Fear cannot coexist with faith in Christ. And faith always eradicates fear. And great calm comes into your life with the Bible calls peace. And there is no storm that will ever come into our lives that can overpower God And He never ever stands far off when we go through them. He always has a purpose for them. Will we trust that He is in control? Not only that, will we trust that He cares? And look at verse, look at the last verse. And the faith of the disciples is exposed for its weakness. Look at the, here's the problem. Jesus stills the storm and all of a sudden the disciples say this, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Do you see the problem? You have the eyes that can see and the ears that can hear. They saw Jesus as a man. They saw him as a Lord, meaning person in authority. They saw him as a master, meaning their leader. They saw him as a teacher, as a great preacher. They didn't see him as a son of God. This is the whole reason Mark wrote this gospel, verse 1 of chapter 1. See, they didn't have their faith in the right person. Jesus was just a great man at this point. Friends, it's not going to be till chapter 8 that one of them, and it's Peter, that finally says, I know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. They've got a little more to go before their faith is there. Right now, Jesus brought this storm. His Father brought this storm to show the condition of their faith. They needed their eyes open. Friends, is your faith weak? Are you still in a storm and are you still doubting God? Are you still accusing Him? Are you still wondering if God cares for you? Friends, listen, you're not alone. And I would never denigrate you and demean you for that place that you're at because you're right where the disciples were. But we have an author and a perfecter of our faith. His name is Jesus. Amen? And He knows how to get those disciples not just through the other side of the lake, through the other side of their faith to where it will be grounded on Him for eternity. And He knows how to do that for you. Humble yourselves, Peter says, who was telling this whole story to Mark. Mark was his interpreter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time 
he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you, friend. He really does. Lord, thank you for this event. Lord, I know we're all going through storms at one point in our life, or we will. And Lord, we need help. We need your hand, your righteous right hand. We need to know that you are our refuge. We need to know that you are the port in the storm. We need to know that you are the wing of the Almighty that overshadows us. That you will never leave us or forsake us in those times in the storms, Lord, where we wonder, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And we wonder where you are. We wonder if you're asleep. Lord, remind us, wake us up and let your grace deal with our doubt. And let your mercy give us that peace. And bring that great calm to our hearts, Lord. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.